Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we really talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner, certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And we have with us today, Dr. Howard Weiner. He is the Robert L. Kroc Professor of Neurology at the Harvard Medical School, Director and Founder of the Partners Multiple Sclerosis Center, and Co-Director of the Ann Romney Center for Neurologic Diseases. This center combines clinical evaluation, MRI imaging, and immune monitoring, and is the first integrated MS center that brings these disciplines to the individual care of the MS patient. Dr. Weiner has pioneered the use of immunotherapy and the drug cyclophosphamide for the treatment of multiple sclerosis and has investigated immune abnormalities in the disease including the role of the innate immune system and regulatory T cells. He's also pioneered the use of the mucosal immune system for the treatment of autoimmune and other diseases, including ALS, Huntington's disease, and stroke. Based on his work, vaccines are being tested in MS, diabetes, and most recently in Alzheimer's disease. He's also developing new therapeutic options for neuromyelitis optica, and MO. Dr. Weiner is the author of Curing MS, How Science is Solving the Mystery of Multiple Sclerosis, Uh, that chronicles the history of MS and his 30 years of research and clinical treatment, as well as his new book, The Brain Under Siege, Solving the Mystery of Brain Disease and How Scientists Are Following the Clues to a Cure. In 2004, Harvard Medical Center honored Dr. Weiner with the establishment of the Howard L. Weiner Professor of Neurology Endowed Chair. And in June 2008, Dr. Weiner premiered his documentary film entitled What is Life? The Movie, a production he's been working on for over three years, a feature-length documentary that explores the big questions in life that everyone faces and for which there are no clear answers. God, the nature of the soul, how to attain meaning in one's life, evil, and destiny. (laughs) So it's going to not be a small conversation today, and we're so grateful to have you here. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. As I was saying, just as the as we were getting started, what I love is that you know small things and you know big things. You you understand the value of looking at big questions and as well as the details. So we're going to kind of range back and forth and let's start. Let's just go for it and start on a cellular level. If you can just tell us about the brain from the perspective of those four types of cells. So the types of the neurons, the oligodendrocytes, the microglia and the astrocytes, what are those cells and what do they do? Well, the major cell types in the brain, as you mentioned, the cell types that make the brain the brain and make us what we are are the neurons. Mm-hmm. They're the what the cells that carry all the information. Uh, that's where our memory is. That's where our consciousness is. That's how we think. That's how we feel. That's how we love. It's all the neurons. Then there are other cells that help out the neurons. One of them is the oligodendrocyte, and the oligodendrocyte puts out myelin or a insulation around the nerve cells of the neurons. So that allows the neurons to conduct electricity better. The other cell in the brain is the microglial cell. That's the immune cell of the brain. The brain has its own immune system. So when something goes wrong, the microglial cell gets activated. It can clear up debris. It can prune synapses or clean up the brain. Also, if the microglia get inflamed, it can cause damage. The astrocyte is the fourth cell. That's another supporting cell that helps make up the brain. It's involved in the blood-brain barrier. Uh, It can also be good or bad in affecting other cells. So basically, the neurons which make the brain the brain, the oligodendrocyte that helps the neuron conduct electricity, microglia, the immune cell of the brain, and astrocytes 
the supporting cell of the brain. Okay. So that that's what we got in there. That's what we're made up of. Can you talk to us a little bit about how communication is regulated between these cell types and how we can think of thing, other molecules of the brain, like hormones, neurotransmitters, um, the immune cells, how, how does the function work? How do these, how do these cells communicate? So the, the neurons communicate by neurotransmitters uh, that they secrete from one cell to the other. They also communicate by electricity. Electricity passes from one thing to the other. That's basically how the neurons communicate, uh, secreting substances and uh, transfer of electricity. The, there are many things that then can affect the neurons. Mm-hmm. So all uh, the other cell types can also put out factors that affect how the neurons work, can also cause damage to the neurons. So the communication is by neurotransmitters, electricity. There can be good, there can be neurotransmitters that dampen this response in the brain or enhance the response. Mm-hmm. So that if they get too excited, you can have a seizure, epilepsy. Obviously, when you drink alcohol, they get downregulated. And then there are many things in the body that can affect the brain. Things that we eat can put out metabolites that go to the brain. But that's the basic communication. How does the immune system communicate with the nervous system? Well, the immune system communicates in many ways. Number one, the immune system is a um, a sentinel. It um, goes throughout the body and it's involved in fighting off infection. And it's also involved in monitoring the body. And as far as the brain is concerned, the immune system can help keep the brain healthy, certain immune cells that go into the brain. Or in diseases like MS, it can attack the brain Mm -hmm. and cause damage. So the immune... The two systems in the body that have memory actually are the immune system in the in the in the brain. They mm. can remember things, so uh, they can go in and uh, the immune system can react with certain parts of the brain, remember what they did in the past, and cells of the immune system are always going in and out of the brain and checking on things. And so, when we think about the conditions that are kind of your specialty, MS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS. What about those conditions, those neurodegenerative or neuroinflammatory? Like what about those conditions? um, What are the ways in which those conditions overlap? And what are some of the ways in which they are unique? So each of the, well, they overlap because they all affect the brain. Some of them have similar situations. Others are more unique. Mm -hmm. MS, so if you talk about these diseases, the question really is what causes them? And in my book, The Brain Under Siege, I talk about the brain as a crime scene. And what starts the crime scene? Who is the initial perpetrator? Mm-hmm. It can change. But so in multiple sclerosis, the initial perpetrator are immune cells that go into the brain, mm-hmm. white blood cells that go into the brain and attack the brain. Now, all my patients say, well, why did they go in and attack the brain? That's a separate question, but probably because they're misdirected and think that there's a virus or something in there and it's an autoimmune tax. So in MS, it's a white blood cell that attacks the brain. In Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS, there are abnormal proteins that accumulate. Those abnormal proteins can then trigger immune response. In Alzheimer's, it's protein called amyloid and another one called tau. In Parkinson's, it's something called alpha-synuclein. In ALS, there's a number of them. One is a a TP protein, 
These proteins can be toxic. And when they go into the brain, when they accumulate in the brain, they can then trigger inflammation by the immune system. Diseases can be the same because after the inflammation is going and the microglia in the brain are activated, then you kind of have an inflamed brain, even though it's caused by different things. And so treatments to try and slow that down can be a benefit. And microglial activation is seen in all these diseases. And we're now studying that and trying to measure microglial activation and how we can decrease it. So how do we measure, how do we see microglial activation? The best way to see it in the brain is by something called PET imaging, where we image a compound called TSPO, and you inject a uh, radio ligand into the body. It goes and it localizes there, and we can see microglial activation with TSPO imaging. It's a research tool. It isn't a clinical tool. Sometimes I ask questions because I want a certain answer, but this question I actually don't know. Like, do you see with these diseases, do you see it localized to parts of the brain or do you see like, do microglial cells get kind of globally activated or do they get locally upset? Oh, it, it depends on the disease. Mm-hmm. They may be more locally activated and maybe in MS they're more globally activated, but it depends on where the most damage is in the brain. So in ALS, it's more in the motor cortex, the motor area. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Alzheimer's, it can be more in the hippocampus or cortical areas. In Parkinson's, it can be more where the dopaminergic pathways. But it's there's a general activation with specific localization depending on the disease. Gotcha. It's so interesting. And I'm just curious to kind of hear... Your perspective, because you've been doing this a long time now, and the science has really come a long way in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Can you just talk a little bit about what you've seen, like, how have you seen things change? And this is, I actually do really recommend for listeners to go out and get this book because it's kind of like you're just sitting down and telling a story about how it all went, which I really appreciate. But can you kind of just tell us from your perspective, like, what has it been like to watch this unfold? So I've been working on this site. Uh, for many years. Uh My wife says, don't tell them how many years, then they know how old you are. But um, (laughs) each of the diseases is different. And it's interesting, the disease that I've focused on MS is the disease that has had the most progress Mm -hmm. over the last decades, and that's MS. The others have had less progress. So the progress in MS, again, uh, my book, The Brain Under Siege, we talk about the crime scene. And in order to solve a crime, you got to know the perpetrators and what goes on. And one of the big questions in MS, say, 30 or 40 years ago was, was MS caused by a virus? Okay. Mm -hmm. Because if MS is a virus, then we know what to do. You got to find the virus, you got to vaccinate, et cetera, if there's a virus in the brain. Now, a virus may trigger the disease, but the question is, is there a virus in the brain? And no one has ever really found an active virus in the brain. Mm -hmm. And there were drugs used there, but the big breakthrough came when we tried to dampen the immune system. And Steve Hauser, who now heads up the UCSF Weill Institute, when he was a fellow and I was a young faculty member in 1983, we published a paper in the New England Journal where we uh, suppressed the immune system with a chemotherapy drug called cyclophosphamide. And that really helped the MS patients. So that was a clue that suppressing the immune system was important. Mm-hmm. And over the next the 20 years after that, there are like 10 or 15 drugs that help MS, mm-hmm. and they all work on different aspects of the immune system. 
One of the drugs called Tysabri or natalizumab is very interesting because it blocks immune cells from getting into the brain. And if you block those cells from getting into the brain, you have less attack. That wouldn't stop Alzheimer's because the problem isn't cells coming in the brain. The problem is the amyloid in the brain. Mm -hmm. So what we've observed in MS over the last 20 or 30 years are drugs to affect the immune system that are very, very effective. Mm -hmm. And as a doctor, that's very encouraging. I just saw a young woman, a medical student. She came down with MS. She's there with her mother. What's going to happen to me? Can I become a doctor? Well, with the drugs we have now, she can become a doctor. She can get married. She can have kids. Mm -hmm. And it's a very nice story. The problem in MS is that there's a second phase called progressive MS, Mm -hmm. where the disease then involves inflammation in the brain, and we don't have drugs for that. So in watching MS, we've seen drugs for relapsing, but not for progressive disease. And progressive MS is similar to Alzheimer's and ALS and and Parkinson's. And when you look at something like Alzheimer's, we really don't have any good drugs for Alzheimer's. Now, there was just a drug aticanumab, which showed some positive results, but there was controversy, Mm -hmm. and it's an anti-amyloid drug. But in one of the calls I was on, one of the one of the Alzheimer's experts says, "Well, Howard, we are with Alzheimer's where we were 30 years ago in MS. Mm-hmm. But they're just beginning to get treatments, and the same is true for ALS and Parkinson's. So it's a little frustrating with these other diseases because mm. if you see somebody with these diseases, you really can't help them very much. Except Parkinson's, are symptomatic treatment." My mother got Alzheimer's and we lost her. There was nothing we could mm. do. My daughter-in-law's mother got ALS. We lost her. Mm. There's nothing we could have done. Uh, so it's kind of been exciting to have treatment for patients, but still frustrating because we have a long way to go with these other diseases. And when you first started with the cyclophosphamide, from my understanding, you also used ACTH. Well, we used ACTH because it was a steroid. Okay. That was a standard treatment that we use. So we're just giving a standard treatment. The main drug was the cyclophosphamide, which is an immunosuppressive drug. The big, and and people have used a lot of immunosuppression and big immunosuppression. The big unexpected finding in MS was that the B cell plays an important role and drugs to knock down B cells are very effective. And it all fits under the rubric of the immune system and blocking the bad inflammation from coming in. Can you talk a little bit about the innate immune system versus the T cells versus the B cells in these brain diseases? Well, the immune system has different components. Many people talk about the immune system as an army Mm because it's fighting things off. So then you can think about, you know, tanks and planes and artillery and drones, you know, all these different things. So the Innate immune system is a rapid response part of the immune system. It responds very quickly. It isn't specific for something. So it's kind of a general response. The adaptive immune system is very specific. Mm -hmm. So that we all know that if we immunize you against polio, you'll be protected against polio, but not against smallpox. Mm -hmm. And that's because the innate immune system recognizes, can distinguish between polio and smallpox. Or the adaptive, yeah, the adaptive immune system. I mean, the adaptive immune system can distinguish between polio and smallpox, and it does it by antibodies and specific T cells. The T cells are probably the big regulators of the immune system. They regulate B cells. The B cells make antibody. T cells are killer cells. And so you have 
killer T cells, regulatory T cells, helper T cells. Mm -hmm. Now, the opposite of MS is cancer, because in cancer and in glioblastoma, and I talk about it in the book, The Brain Under Siege, uh, the problem is that the immune system can't kill the cancer cells. So mm -hmm. when I talked about the immune system monitoring the body and the T cells going everywhere, we have cancer cells coming up in our body all the time, all our lives. Mm -hmm. And the T cells go around and kill it, knock it out. And as we get older, or if we are exposed to a toxin, or we have a genetic mutation or whatever, the cancer cells start growing, and the T cells can't knock them out. And actually, the cancer cells put up a defense and stop the T cells, the killer T cells from coming in. Mm -hmm. And the breakthrough in cancer therapy, which won a Nobel Prize, was a way to unblock those killer T cells so they could kill the cancers. So these are called checkpoint inhibitors. And if someone has cancer, we give them something, it frees up the T cell, the killer T cells that can go in and knock out the cancer. That's just the opposite of MS. In fact, some of the people who get these checkpoint inhibitors, uh, if they have MS, it could make their MS a little worse. Mm -hmm. So T cells are the regulators of the immune system. The innate cells are monocytes, macrophages, dendritic cells are the first responders. They'll respond to anything. B cells mm -hmm. make antibody. And the antibody is what is specific. So the T cells, you know, you can have the killer T cells or the regulatory T cells or the helper T cells, and they can go, you, you can have one recipient of attention from a T cell that's a killer, a helper, or a regulator. So they're not necessarily just specific versus the B cells, which are- No, no, the T cells, problem. each T cell has a receptor and it's specific for one thing. It just has different functions. Okay. So the T cell is specific. You could have a T cell specific for polio versus uh, smallpox. Okay. So the T cells are also specific. The T right. cells are specific. Right. The, the T cell receptor okay. and B cells have a receptor, the B cell receptor, which is called an antibody. Mm-hmm. The T cells go around, they have to touch other things in order to do what they have to do. The okay. B cells make antibodies and the antibodies float around in the bloodstream. And antibodies are a major way the immune system, the adaptive immune system does something. So if you, when you immunize someone against COVID, they make T cells specific for the COVID virus, mm -hmm. but they also make antibodies. They make antibodies against the COVID virus. And we actually can treat people with COVID by giving them antibodies against COVID, okay? And another major advance in medicine was something called monoclonal antibodies. Somebody discovered that they could take a B cell and immortalize it so it would make, monoclonal means one clone, so it could make as much antibody against one very specific structure as we wanted to. Mm -hmm. So the pharmaceutical companies make clone, one clone, one cell, and they grow that cell into billions of cells in a vat. And it makes the exact same antibody, monoclonal antibody, and then they can give that as therapy. And that's what we see on the commercials on TV. A lot of the commercials are for the various monoclonal antibodies for rheumatoid arthritis or for ulcerative colitis or for... Exactly. Monoclonal antibodies are a standard therapy because you could make a monoclonal antibody against anything. I could make a monoclonal antibody against the joint to help rheumatoid arthritis, against the skin to help that disease, 
etc. And so, and a lot of those drugs will recognize because they end in M for monoclonal and AB for antibodies. So it's all the MAB, right? Right. MABs means monoclonal antibody. Okay. So if it if you have like um, natalizumab, they they give different names. So there's natalizumab, ocrelizumab. I mean, you could. <laughs> Make Why are they list. so long and complicated? <laughs> well, they're long and complicated because they're chemical names. And then the companies come up with a trade name. Right. And as doctors, we have to learn the chemical name and the trade name. So these are the maps. So those are the monoclonal antibodies. And so we can see this progression in MS where we thought it was. A, you th I mean, and I can't imagine how exciting it has been just over your career to watch this unfold, you know, because this is like a story. It's like you're watching a movie. There's just that just keeps going with the story where, you know, you see these symptoms. You think maybe it's the virus you treat with something that suppresses the immune system um, or, or even antivirals like the interferons. Well, the interferons are, they work on the immune system, not on a virus. They were tried because of a virus, but they ended up working on the immune system. And so they work on the immune system. And then you've kind of progressed through this era of monoclonal antibodies and then through B cell targets. So those would be medications like rituximab, right. another MAB, or Ocrevus, another MAB. And there's another one, Ofatumumab. I mean, there are, there's many of them. I mean, there's hundreds, right? There's hundreds of MAB. You mean in medicine, there's in thousands? Thousands of maps. It could be thousands of maps because <laughs> each one is against a different thing. I'm just imagining, you know, your picture, your image of like a vat of antibody. And now I'm just, I can't help but imagine all these thousands of vats around our country, you know, producing these maps. That's correct. That's correct. That's amazing. But then we've got some, like some one-offs, like there's some other medications that we might be considering that you talk a little bit about. Like what about Ibutilast? Oh, butylast. Well, that's a drug that, um, you know, can affect the innate immune system or affect certain monocytes or macrophages that might help. Remember, the immune system has all these different components. So some scientists try to study targets that are not specific, that are more nonspecific. Mm -hmm. So that's where a drug like a butylast comes in. Mm -hmm. Or the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, those are tyrosine, but there's these BTK inhibitors. Mm -hmm. These are very popular now. Many think about four or five drug companies are trying are doing big studies with them. They probably will work how well they'll work compared to other drugs. We don't know. One of the interesting things is that drug companies often are kind of a me too things. They all get interested in one type of drug and they all come up with the variation of it. Mm hmm. Uh, rather than the discovery for very unique things often does not come from pharmaceutical companies, comes from academic laboratories. Oh, and I remember one of these met, now I'm not remembering which one was from, is it an insect or fungus? Fungus, is that right? Golomod, yeah, there was people look for drugs in the soil, looking for, one of the ways that people used to look for drugs is in the soil and uh, whether they're fungi or other type of things that are putting out compounds. So the big question is, where do you look for medicine? Now, penicillin, remember, was discovered uh, because of how it affected growth of certain bacteria. Mm -hmm. So you can look for drugs in many different ways. You can make one with a monoclonal antibody. You can check the soil to see whether there's something. Maybe there's an animal that does something. I don't know. I'm making it up a bee or an insect that does something that affects something. Mm -hmm. Now, in very sophisticated, as we get very sophisticated in 
medicine, let's say I know there's a specific protein or structure in the brain and I want to target it. Mm -hmm. And if I know the structure, I can make a artificial compound. I can create a compound, a small molecule that will bind to it Mm -hmm. and have an effect. So let's say that I'm doing work in the laboratory and I'm studying one of these neurologic diseases and I study, say, the microglial cells and I study all the proteins on the microglial cells and I find there's a structure on the microglial cells that is important for making it be dangerous or making it be toxic. And I know what that structure is. And I, so I might design something that binds to that structure and blocks it. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's another way that there's drug discovery. You find something and then you make a small molecule that can affect it, either stimulate it or block it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about those glial cells because you know, in MS, we think about the oligodendrocytes because of the myelin sheath that they produce. And in MS, that seems to be kind of what doesn't, the, the part that doesn't work. But talk to us a little bit more about the microglia, like the inflammatory mechanism of the central nervous system. What are some of the medications or the ways that we can target microglial cells? Well, the microglial cells, it's a really a brand new area that people are targeting. And people are beginning to look to see how the drugs we use work on the microglial cells because we're interested in shutting down the inflammation in the brain. Mm-hmm. Now, in our center, we made a discovery a number of years ago. I, I came up with a nasal, giving a monoclonal antibody nasally. No one has ever done that, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I give a, a nasal spray, a monoclonal antibody, and it creates cells that go into the brain and dampen the microglial inflammation. So we're beginning to give this to some of our MS patients, and we measure it by this PET imaging, where we take an image of the brain. There's other people trying to target microglial cells, but this is a very specific example that we're doing. Now, we just sponsored an international symposium on microglial cells. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone at my center, Tarun Singhal and myself, People from all over, France, England, Finland, all over the United States, and they were reporting how the activation of the microglial cells is seen in all these diseases, Mm -hmm. seen in MS, seen in Alzheimer's, seen in Parkinson's, Mm -hmm. seen in ALS. So if it's there, Mm -hmm. how do you measure it Mm -hmm. and how can you shut it down? Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a new target uh, that's developed in the last couple of years. And like I said, we're coming up with a nasal vaccine or nasal spray to dampen the microglial activation in MS. And we may try it in Alzheimer's as well, using a monoclonal antibody. And what's the name of this nasal spray? Monoclonal antibody is called Feralimab. I mean, it's just, it's just started. We're going to be talking about it at some of the MS meetings. Interesting. When you talk about vaccine, you know, I, I think most of us right now are primed to have big feelings about vaccines from all of our news. But talk to us about what a vaccine for MS or Alzheimer's or talk to us about what a vaccine means in this context. So it's a very good question. The word vaccine, when people think about a vaccine, they think about um you know, polio vaccine or COVID vaccine or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the word vaccine comes from the word vaccinia. That's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And what is vaccinia? Vaccinia is the drug that causes smallpox. So in, in England, people used to get smallpox caused by the vaccinia. But then they discovered that the maids who used to milk the cows, they never got smallpox. 
And the reason they didn't is because they got cowpox. They got a, a something like smallpox from the cow. And that protected them. And they said, well, that's like the, the name of the virus is called vaccinia. So that's a vaccine. And that's where the word vaccine came from. And so what the word vaccine means is to treat a disease by stimulating the immune system so it's beneficial to the host. That's what it means. So when we talk about a, a nasal vaccine for Alzheimer's, which we're working on, where we give a certain bacteria or something into the nose and it stimulates uh, cells called monocytes to clean out the amyloid in the brain. The amyloid is bad. What we're saying, a nasal vaccine for Alzheimer's is one that stimulates the immune system to work in a beneficial way for the host and to clear out the damaging parts of the disease. So if you think about a COVID vaccine, you get the immune system to knock out the virus, right? Mm -hmm. The nasal vaccine for Alzheimer's creates immune cells that eat up the amyloid and clear the amyloid out of the brain, which is toxic to the brain. So that's what we mean by a vaccine. Fascinating. And so what you're talking about is an antibody against amyloid so that the body essentially, like in MS, the natural process is that there's an antibody or there's something against that breaks down the myelin and gets rid of it. And so you're talking about an intentional Right. When I talk and about a vaccine, I'm not. I'm okay. talking more about a vaccine that stimulates uh, T cells, not necessarily the antibody. Uh, T cells, so that we're talking about. So, if you want to talk about the nasal vaccine for Alzheimer's that we're working on, and we started a trial, it was in the news. What we do, we give a uh, a substance. It's called protolin. It it has uh, comes from certain bacteria, and that stimulates white blood cells in the blood to go into the brain and clear out the amyloid. That's what the nasal okay. vaccine is. Oh, gotcha. And there's a nasal sprayer vaccine. We're trying an MS that stimulates the cells to dampen the microglial activation. So the microglia aren't as activated. So it's a little conceptually complex, but it's actually very simple. You stimulate the immune system to do something good, to clear out the bad things in the brain, whether it's activated microglia or amyloid. Amyloid, you know, we can also, we at our clinic sometimes do skin biopsies in the leg and sometimes we'll even see deposition of amyloid or alpha-synuclein in those locations. So it's not just in the brain. That's correct. It isn't necessarily just in the brain. In those diseases, you can see it in other places. And so we know, and you talk about in your book, that these the central nervous system, despite a blood-brain barrier, is very connected to the rest of the body, even through the microbiome. That's correct. The brain is really connected to the whole body. The brain tells the body what to do. The body interacts with the brain. And one of the big areas I talk about in my book, The Brain Under Siege, is the microbiome, which is the trillions of bacteria we have in our gut. Mm -hmm. And we now know that those bacteria communicate with the brain that's called the gut-brain axis, and they can have important effects on neurologic disease. Mm -hmm. And we actually can do these, we can do experiments where we take a microbiome from a patient, translating it, it's like taking poop from a patient, okay? Mm -hmm. and giving it to a mouse, and then it can affect the mouse disease, MS or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. So we now know 
that the microbiome has a big effect on almost every disease. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's certain anti-cancer therapies that work better or worse depending on your microbiome. And so then you have, I mean, all my patients ask me, well, what should I eat? Should I take a probiotic? How's my microbiome? So we don't have an answer. We did do a study where we gave a probiotic to MS patients and measured some changes, but it was just a research study. And I predict that in the next five or 10 years, there will be specific ways to manipulate the microbiome. Things will take mm-hmm. that affect the gut that will help the brain. So then everybody says, what can I do now to help my brain? Well, a Mediterranean diet is very good. That's very good. Thing. You know, you talk about things that got, you know, vet, you always talk about fruits and vegetables, but they have all these compounds, all these metabolites, all these that go to the brain and help the brain. So is I'm now sounding like a mother rather than a doctor, eat your fruits and vegetables. I mean, it's very <laughs> good for your brain. The other thing that's very good for your brain is exercise. If you want to keep your brain healthy, exercise is very important. My practice initially, I started out actually studying Ayurveda. Uh, Ayurvedic medicine. I was very interested in health. And I, one of the things, and that inspired me to kind of go forth and, and get into studying medicine and practicing medicine. Um, but one of the things Ayurveda says is that we're not what we eat, we are what we digest. And so it's, we have to also take into account how good our digestive mechanisms are, how good the squirting and churning of all the juices and the gut lining and the microbiome. And so that you can actually uptake the right nutrients and that they can get to the right areas to actually build the tissue and do the functions that you want. So that digestion is, you know, diet and digestion are really the key hallmarks. Yeah. What you say is exactly right. That's uh, those are very good points. And so there have been a couple diet lifestyle trials. Is that right for MS? There are different trials. Um, There used to be this thing called the Swank diet, but I don't know really how good that is. People always ask me, there's a Walls diet, a woman who who tried that, but I'm not, I don't think it makes a difference. Vitamin D is very important Mm -hmm. uh, and that helps the gut. So we make sure all of our patients have good levels of vitamin D. It's very hard to have a specific diet because everybody's diet is so different. Yes. And that's actually another thing that Ayurveda will say is, you know, your diet needs to be specific to you in this time and place. You know, Ayurveda will say medicine for one can be poison for another. And even the medicine that is, you know, the substance that's medicine for you now can be poison for you you know, five years from now that you really, and then they, you know, they talk about how to personalize a diet, but I agree with you there. It's very difficult to say everybody should eat this thing or this thing or not eat this thing. One thought or one thing that I found really interesting in your book that kind of blew my mind was the role of chromalin. So chromalin is a medication that I use a lot in, for patients with mast cell activation disorders, um, who, don't tolerate their food. So they eat and the mast cells in their gut get all worked up and then they get runny noses or hives after they eat, or they get irritable or um, they get emotionally labile from all the histamine released from the mast cells after eating food. And so we can do oral chromalin, which is an old asthma medication to kind of stabilize mast cells in the gut. But you were talking about how there's some phase three trials for inhaled chromalin for Alzheimer's. Is that right? Yeah, there's people trying that because they think it may work on microglial cells in the innate immune system. They Mm -hmm. had some data in animals. So they're testing it in Alzheimer's and hopefully it'll work. One of the things that I discovered in writing my book, The Brain Under Siege, is 
unfortunately, many of these big trials don't work. Mm. That's across all diseases, even with great doctors and great scientists. And it's because the body is so complex. You know, when we treat a mouse or something, they're all genetically identical. They're all under the same conditions, but every person is different. Yeah. And so treating human disease is very complex and things that we think work may not work when you have phase two trials. So you have to be very persistent and tough and accept a lot of failure. You know, they say that success is going from one failure to another without losing enthusiasm. And I think that's <laughs> that's what um, finding drugs for these neurologic diseases is like. Wow. And it really became apparent that diving down and doing secondary analyses was one way to actually continue the progress forward. That's correct. So since people are different, let's say you treat a thousand people and you don't see an effect, but maybe there's a subgroup because the people are different. Now, a simple way to do it is you could treat a thousand people and look at the males and the females. Do the males respond and the females don't Mm -hmm. respond? And that's a simple way to think about it. Mm -hmm. But you could also look at the genetics of the people, the age of the people, uh, whether they have a certain genotype again, and they may respond where someone else doesn't respond. So even if you do a big trial and it doesn't work, if you do subgroup analysis, Mm -hmm. you might find a group that responds. Now, if you do that, you can't say you found it. You got to redo the study just with those subgroups. But it seems like that's how some of the progress has been made is by having a a technical failure of a trial and then pulling out the subgroup successes and then moving forward with those trials. Exactly. And there's also, it seems like there's some other treatments that I got kind of curious about. Even this All's Life trial using light therapy, this 40 hertz oscillating. What do you you think about that? I think it's very interesting. They have very provocative data in animals and some initial data in people. Uh And they're doing a trial. You know, light can affect different receptors. Uh And, you know, maybe it'll work. You never know what'll work. We've, one of the scientists in our center found out that a certain gas, a xenon gas may, which is used for anesthesia, may help microglian wants to test it in people. So you never know. The most important thing is to have a good biomarker and have a good way to measure the effect of the light or whatever you're doing on the cells that cause the disease. And so what do you think about this neurofilament light chain? So neurofilament light chain is turned out to be a very important biomarker for neurologic diseases. Mm -hmm. And that comes, you know, we talked about the neurons at the beginning of the discussion. And when the neurons are damaged, they release a neurofilament light chain, comes out of the damaged neurons. Mm -hmm. So we can now measure that in the blood. And if that's elevated, that means there's damage going on in the brain to the neurons. Now, this can be seen in any disease, in MS, in Alzheimer's, in concussion, in head injury. But it's turned out to be a very important measure of brain injury although it's not specific for one disease. And it's just central. So it's not the, like the neurons of the peripheral nervous system do not release it. Is that right? No, it would be mainly the central nervous system. Okay. Do you draw that? Do you check that marker in your, like when you see patients? We do. We're studying it. It hasn't turned out, it hasn't translated yet into a routine test that you would use when you see a patient, Uh but it's getting close to that. We're doing, we have a big study at our center 
called the CLIMB study headed by Tanuja Chitnis at our center, where we're following 2,000 patients or 4,000, all these MS patients, and we're always drawing blood from them and following them year by year. And so we're looking at the neurofilament light chain in the blood to see how that correlates with disease. We would like to use it like to measure, does someone have a heart attack? Do you have high blood pressure? I think we're going to get there, but not yet. In my practice, you know, over the last couple of decades that I've, since I've known Ayurveda, we use a therapy called Panchakarma, which is a five-day detox process. If you go to India, you go to a retreat for a month. Um, but in our experience, people I have had, patients have remarkable outcomes. And, and what it looks like from the outside is a lot of massage and a lot of oil treatments. We actually do oil in the nose and the ears. And internally, I've had some patients, I've had two ALS patients actually who have said they felt better um, after Panchakarma than they did before they were even, you know, but they, it was right. the best they had felt since being diagnosed with ALS and had improved function. Um, and what I think it's doing is I think it functions like a very strong anti-inflammatory so that right. it hits the reset button. I've had patients with MS get up off the table and say, this is the best I've felt in 20 years. One of the principles that Ayurveda uses is one of the eight branches is called Rasayana or restoration, rejuvenation. And some of the treatments that are talked about now, um, and the example that I'm going to give is stem cells is really more about rejuvenation or restoration. And so I'm curious your thoughts on stem cell therapy, kind of what we know now and kind of what you think its potential is. Well, stem cell therapy, there's all different types of stem cells. Mm -hmm. I think that it's being used in MS and ALS, putting it in the spinal fluid to see whether it can release substances that help the brain, neurotransmitters or other substances. In other diseases like diabetes or whatever, they're trying to uh, replace islets that have been damaged. You can't really replace very specific cells in the brain because you, you can't have their connections be put together. Mm -hmm. So I don't see immediate, I don't see immediate, everybody says, well, I can't walk, give me stem cells, rebuild my nervous system, and then I'll walk again. I, I don't see that happening. Mm -hmm. I think the stem cells are going to be more for uh, discovering new drugs, mm -hmm. and maybe helping some of the very bad diseases by releasing factors that can be a benefit. So right, so we, what you're saying is we're not... We're not lizards. We're not growing a new tail here. Yeah, that's exactly. I wish we were, but we're not. That's exactly right. So basically what we've talked about today, I just want to recap, is that we have come a really long way. We've talked about the four different types of cells and kind of how we are learning about them, how what we're thinking about them now and knowing that we're still kind of even in some of these diseases, especially like the deposition diseases. So Alzheimer's, um, Parkinson's maybe even to some degree ALS, we're still kind of at the beginning stages of understanding them and treating them, but that we definitely have, we're on the path. Does that sound right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The more we know about the crime scene, the easier it's going to be to solve it. Excellent. Well, do you have any other thoughts about um, things we should kind of know today? Uh, not really. I think that uh, uh, what I say to people, I, there, there's two sides. One, they need to have hope. Uh, because a lot of things are, a lot of new discovery, a lot of new treatments coming out. It is frustrating mm -hmm. because the people who have these illnesses or whose family has them, that there are treatments, the treatments don't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to be patient, uh, participate in trials, donate money, 
and then find strength in your family and friends, your spiritual beliefs or whatever to, to enjoy your life as best you can. Great. And those bigger questions we didn't really get to today, but maybe that's a maybe that's a conversation for another show. <laughs> yeah, we could the big questions of life we could uh, we can uh, that's a conversation of another show. That's a philosophical discussion. Absolutely. But that's what makes it all worth it, right? So Exactly. Exactly. Well, I want to really thank you um, for being here today with us and thank you all for listening. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can get more information about Dr. Weiner at his website or at ours. Please be sure to share this show with your friends. We welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and we're committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org.